The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you'll join me in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. This evening we will be looking at verses 8 through 14. In 1919, the Soviet Union created a system for what they called correctional labor that later became known as the gulags. Gulag is actually an acronym in Russian, but in the English is translated as Main Camp Administration, which was a special division of secret police and the Soviet Ministry of the Interior that oversaw the use of prisoners for the purpose of physical labor. The use of the gulags escalated dramatically under Joseph Stalin and not only kept convicted criminals, but the majority of the prisoners were innocent people locked up for a vast array of political reasons trumped up charges that even included things like their ethnicity. The prisoners were not only from nations within the USSR, but also included Czechoslovakians, Poles, Hungarians, Frenchmen, and even some Americans. Historians estimate that the total number of gulag prisoners through the years was around 15 to 18 million people with around one and a half million of them dying during their incarceration. There were estimated to be some 500 camp administrations that ran a total number of gulags that were in the range of 30,000. The USSR used the prisoners in the gulags as slave labor, timber production and mining, working on large construction projects and other difficult backbreaking tasks. After Stalin's death in 1953, the Gulag prison population decreased significantly and officially ended in 1960. However, several labor colonies continued to exist for political prisoners and Soviet dissidents until the end of the Soviet era under Mikhail Gorbachev. In 1973, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's gripping masterpiece called the Gulag Arca. Uh, Archipelagio, that's a mouthful. It was published by a Russian underground publisher and quickly gained international acclaim. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature as he provided a stirring record. He wrote about four decades of Soviet terror and oppression. Solzhenitsyn was a prisoner in a gulag himself, and so much of his writing recounts his own experience. One writer comments that the book brilliantly evokes a mentality which no longer exists and which is increasingly difficult to describe or explain. The atmosphere of constant fear, the constant temptation of betrayal, the ubiquity of secret police, the reversal of normal values, the generalized cruelty that permeated the culture of the Gulag and of the Soviet Union itself. Now, prior to the publication of Solzhenitsyn's book, very little attention was given to human rights in international affairs. But afterwards, the West began to take a closer look, and especially under the administration of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. 
It's an important work in world history. I wish more people would spend time to read it because Solzhenitsyn captures something of the evil that exists at the heart of tyranny. We live in a unique time. Many of us are old enough to have seen the rise and fall of tyrants. We've seen the West take a position of complete opposition to tyrannical regimes, while in more recent years, the pendulum has seemingly swung to where we now embrace many of the very ideals that the West so fervently opposed just 50 to 100 years ago. It's easy to read history and ask, how did this happen? It's easy to look back at atrocities of the past and say, never again. But seldom do we think about just how fragile freedom and peace truly are. Solzhenitsyn wrote, nothing is easier than stamping your foot and shouting, that's mine. It is immeasurably harder to proclaim, you may live as you please. Unlimited power in the hands of limited people always leads to cruelty. In light of the conditions he endured, perhaps the most surprising thing that Solzhenitsyn wrote is what has become one of the most famous lines of his book. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Now, as Christians, we understand exactly what Solzhenitsyn means. It's easy to look at despotic tyrants and condemn their actions and loathe their existence. But the inquisitive focus of our eye adjusts when it's time to look at ourselves because we are afraid of what we might find. And as we continue looking at these opening verses of Exodus, we are introduced to a new king, a new pharaoh over Egypt, who was a lot like Stalin or Lenin or Hitler or Mao or Kim Jong-un or perhaps even given the opportunity and a complete surrender to a depraved heart, perhaps even you and me. Despotism is not a new phenomenon, nor is it a departure from what the human heart is capable of. God in his mercy has restrained what every man could truly be if left to go his own way and fulfill his heart's desires. Thank God that he's ordained systems and institutions that have held back the natural tendencies of man. But let us never forget that we are never too far removed from walking into a gulag ourselves. Consider the Israelites. They lived for many years in Egypt in relative peace. As a result of the wise efforts of Joseph, his family was invited and welcomed into the land to make a home for themselves. Presumably, they built homes, they worked in the community, and they continued to worship God. They were also fulfilling God's command to be fruitful and multiply. Having started with only 70 people, they eventually grew strong in number. What they likely didn't expect was that one day, a new king, a new dynasty would begin in Egypt that would end life as they had always known it. 
One night they would go to sleep as free men and women. The next morning they would awake to find that their neighborhood and the nation that they called home had become a gulag of their own. So let's read beginning in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Well, last time we considered how it was that the Israelites ended up in Egypt and how God had made promises to his people that were to be fulfilled. God is a covenant-keeping God, and his covenant is that he has given to the Israelites is that he would give to them their own land, the land of Canaan. But how? How would God use this small group of nothings and nobodies to bring about his purposes to fulfill his promise? The hint that we saw last time was in verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The statement is pregnant with meaning and anticipation. So where does it go from here? Well, the first thing for us to identify in the text is what the psalmist tells us. Put not your trust in princes. Look again at verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now if you were reading the Pentateuch carefully for the first time and you came to verse 8, perhaps it would leave you with two thoughts. First, you might think, this happened before. Remember in Genesis, Potiphar's wife lied about Joseph, accusing him of rape, and Joseph was cast into prison. When he was in prison, Joseph met two uh, very important men who had personally known and served the Pharaoh of the time. One man was his cupbearer, and the other was his baker. And these men were put in prison alongside Joseph because they had offended Pharaoh. And while they were there, they had dreams that they did not understand. And so Joseph interpreted their dreams, and he told the cupbearer what that his dream meant that he would be restored as one of Pharaoh's servants in three days, and then he told the baker that in three days' time that he would be hung on a tree and the birds would eat the flesh off of his bones. Well, both of those dreams were fulfilled. And so Joseph asked the cupbearer to do him a favor. Show him kindness, show him influence, and tell the Pharaoh 
what I have done for you to get me out of prison. Now, unfortunately for Joseph, when the cupbearer was restored to his position, the text tells us in Genesis 40, 23, that the cupbearer forgot him. And for two more years, Joseph sat in prison. And so it is, uh, any Is there any surprise for us that we find ourselves here once again? A new king arose who did not know Joseph. But if you were reading the Pentateuch carefully for the first time, there might be another thought that comes to you when you get to verse 8, and that is simply this. Uh Uh-oh. Now, you may not know what's coming, but with those ominous words, you can assume that it's probably not good. Now, there's much speculation as to who this new king was, the new pharaoh that did not know Joseph. Now, perhaps it's not that he didn't know about Joseph at all, but rather that he was not inclined to continue to favor him and his descendants, as was the case in the past. Perhaps it means that while he knew of Joseph, he never had any personal interactions with him. It could also be taken to mean that we now have an entirely new dynasty. There was no concern for the past. It was a fresh start in Egypt. And so previously granted favors and alliances did not matter to him at all. Whatever the truth is, the central point is this. The new Pharaoh had an agenda that that did not include remembering or learning what Joseph had done. This verse succinctly encapsulates the sin of ingratitude. It was Joseph, who we read of in Genesis 47, that ensured through a statute concerning the land of Egypt that the Pharaoh himself should receive a fifth of everything that the people produced on the land. So not only did Joseph ensure the survival of the Egyptians and the Israelites, but he ensured that the Pharaoh would be exceedingly rich. But John Calvin writes, So are tyrants accustomed to engulf whatever is paid them without considering by what right it is acquired. You see, tyrants don't care about why they have what they have or how they got it. The only care that they have is that it's theirs, and they're going to use it for their own wicked ends. And so it was with the Israelites. Pharaoh didn't care why the Israelites were in Egypt, but what he did know is that they were multiplying. They were growing exceedingly strong, and that the land was filled with them. And if the Israelites had any hope that their new Pharaoh was going to show them favor, that he was going to continue to ensure that Egypt was a prosperous land and that they were going to be able to live in relative peace, their hopes were about to be dashed. It's a reminder to all of us of those words of the psalmist. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Now, it's certainly natural And right that we as citizens of a nation might prefer one political candidate over another. We might want one kind of leader over another. We want a certain kind of government over another. But brothers and sisters, let us never forget that even the best political candidates are men. 
And even the best systems are run by mere mortals with sinful hearts. Lord Acton famously wrote in his letter to Bishop Creighton, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It is so common in our day to hear the musings of men on how much better things would be if only we had the right president or the right senator or the right governor in place. Now, certainly, there are some who are better than others. I'm glad I live in Florida and not California. And many work for the greater good of the citizenry. But all too often, the result is that the promises are broken and power gets the best of them. Their focus turns away from the people and it's placed in the mirror. And even if there is a once-in-a-lifetime leader of godly virtue who takes the reins of a nation, he won't live forever. Someone else will come in and you can be assured that the odds are not in favor of him being like what came before. Men make terrible gods, and all too often those who aspire to political office more closely resemble the demons. And here with Pharaoh, we see the stark reality of humanity and the real essence of sin. We see in verses 9 and 10 that the essence of sin is centering your life on yourself. Look again, verse 9, and he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Well, when Pharaoh saw that God was blessing his people, his first response is fear. The people, they continue to multiply. Israel continues to grow. What if they decide that they no longer want peace and prosperity and freedom that they have enjoyed so long in this land that they decide to join forces with our enemies and fight against us? We need to do something about it. Do you see how irrational his fear was? There's no indication whatsoever that the Israelites had any hostility toward Egypt. The reality is that it was, for that generation of Israelites, the only home that they ever knew. What would provoke them to want to rise up against Pharaoh and their Egyptian neighbors, their co-workers and customers, their friends and classmates? Pharaoh's fears were unfounded and irrational, but such is the way of a tyrant. What's really going on is that, is that God is blessing the Israelites for simply continuing to be his people. And Pharaoh's ultimate enemy wasn't the Israelites. It was God himself. What Pharaoh couldn't ultimately accept was that the Israelites weren't depending on him for their every need. But that they were doing just fine trusting God with their simple lives in a foreign land. What Pharaoh couldn't accept and indeed what no tyrant can accept, is that the people don't see him as their God. What Pharaoh couldn't accept is that there may be a day when the people of Israel return to the land of Canaan and he no longer benefits from their labors. 
We can assume that the people that he said were too many and too mighty were exceedingly productive. And he got a portion of everything that they produced. And so, lest there ever come a day when his power and his wealth be diminished, Pharaoh was determined to get ahead of the problem and take the batter into his own hands. They weren't his enemies before, but you can be assured that they will be now. But this is the essence of sin, isn't it? Let's not be naive and think that Pharaoh's concern was for the integrity of the nation or or her people. The center of Pharaoh's universe was himself. He knew what he wanted, and every perceived threat to what he wanted must be eliminated. But that's how sin works. It's as if we are all little pharaohs in our own minds. We live in our castle and we spend our time making demands of others. And if they do what we want, we are content. But the second they step out of line, we react. The second we even perceive that they may not do as we please, we react. Sin is our assuming that everyone and everything in this world exists to serve us. Do you want to be my friend? Then affirm my choices and never question my actions. Do you want to be my spouse? Then do not put any expectations on me and make sure you meet all of mine. Do you want to be my child? Then do as I say and never do anything that might embarrass me. Do you want to be my church? Tell me what you are offering that will make me happy and check the box of everything that I enjoy. Just like Pharaoh punishing the Israelites for no crime that they had done, we punish others when our flesh is not satisfied. Brothers and sisters, whenever we are living by the flesh, we are proclaiming to the world that we see ourselves as Pharaoh's. We are out to get what we want because we assure ourselves that we deserve it. We don't ask, what does God want? We assert, this is my will and it shall be accomplished. It is good that we would all ask ourselves, what am I living for? What is central in my life? And if we are living for ourselves, if we are central in our own lives, in no time at all will we begin to hate God's word and hate God's people. God will just begin to live on the perimeter of our lives because he and his people remind us that we are not God and we are not in a right relationship with the one who is. Pharaoh hated that the people of God were enjoying such abundant blessings. Do you ever look at other people and see how God is blessing them and respond not in thankfulness and not in gratitude for all the ways that the Lord has blessed you and those in your midst, but instead respond in bitterness and anger because his ways are not your own? We must guard our hearts lest we find ourselves standing in opposition to our God. Look and see what happens. In verse 10, notice Pharaoh says, come, let us. He's ready to implement his plan of domination. But those three simple words are striking because we only see them used one other time in the text. And that is in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4. You'll recall, then they said, come, 
let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops into the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That was the Tower of Babel. And, and what does Pharaoh say? Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now the words themselves, come, let us, might not be all that significant, but the manner in which they are employed certainly are. The way in, the way in which Pharaoh is going to, in his words, deal shrewdly with the Israelites, we see it in verse 14. It is in mortar and brick and all kinds of hard work in the field. Back at the Tower of Babel, in the verse just prior to them announcing that they were going to build this city with a tower to the tops of the heavens, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they, have, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So you see, in both instances, what are they doing? They're building cities out of bricks and mortar to make a name for themselves. Verse 11 even tells us what the Israelites did. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. It becomes all the more clear that Pharaoh really wasn't concerned about, about the Israelites becoming his enemies at all. He was trying to make a name for himself. He certainly accomplished that as we think about him thousands of years later, but God help us that we would ever be remembered as enemies of God. In great contrast to, to Pharaoh's self-destructive intent, remember what God told Abraham in Genesis 12. I will make a name for you. I will make your name great. This battle between Pharaoh and God was over before it ever started. And yet, Pharaoh still had no idea. There's no doubt that when you know the full story, you realize that in writing this the way that he did, Moses is setting us up for what's to come. A showdown with the God of the universe and a wicked, lazy tyrant. There's no question as to who will win. Pharaoh will find himself in the middle of an unwinnable battle. It's like a newborn ant under the boot of a giant. This reminded me of June 2007 in St. Paul, Minnesota. A man named Brandon Burke stepped into a boxing ring with Phil Williams it was the fourth professional match that both of them had been in, and after months of training, after months of conditioning, after a lot of back and forth trash talk between the boxers, this is where everything would finally be decided in the boxing ring. Who would win the match? And as soon as the bell rung to start the match, Burke charged toward Williams to throw a punch while his guard was down, and at the same time, Williams landed a vicious right hook to his chin, and Burke crashed to the mat face first. He wasn't able to regain himself after the eight-second count from the referee, and the fight ended. It was over. Months of preparation, a whole lot of trash talk. It all ended in two seconds the fastest knockout in professional boxing history. The fight was over before it began. 
Burke didn't know it when he stepped into the ring. I'm sure his aspirations were high, his adrenaline pumping, his sights set on victory, but there he was, face down on the mat, defeated before the bell even stopped ringing. Now, like Burke, Pharaoh would do well to never set foot on the canvas. He would do well to take off the gloves and recognize that victory for him is nowhere in sight. But the problem for Pharaoh is that he doesn't even realize he's actually in a fight. He's going to get blindsided with an uppercut that he never saw coming. But Pharaoh is committed to his agenda. He doesn't know the God of the Israelites. He doesn't know the plans and purposes of God that can never be thwarted. He has unwittingly put himself in a contest against the almighty God of Israel who says, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Moses is hinting to us, get your popcorn ready because you won't want to miss what happens next. We'll see it unfold in the weeks to come. But for now, we finally see in the concluding verses that God will use your suffering for his purposes. The text says, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Severe, ruthless labor has always been a means used by tyrants to keep people down and to diminish their numbers. Malnourishment on strain and strain on the body often keeps women from being able to bear children. Long hours of hard work keeps men away from women. There are many examples throughout history of citizens being under the brutal boot of tyranny. Pharaoh was certain that he would keep the Israelites at bay by afflicting them with heavy burdens. But once again, God had other plans. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. But notice just how harsh the treatment was. Taskmasters were over them, undoubtedly with whips to keep them working. The term taskmaster refers to someone who is, who is uh, tasked with ensuring that forced labor was being completed. And in this case, it was the building of a civilization on behalf of Pharaoh that he might make his name great. The text says they were afflicted. They endured heavy burdens. They were oppressed. They were treated ruthlessly. They worked as slaves. Their lives were bitter with hard service. And finally, in verse 14, in all their work, the Egyptians ruthlessly made the Israelites work as slaves. It all sounds so miserable and so cruel. And yet, verse 12 keeps standing out. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. Pharaoh had effectively scared the Egyptians into thinking that the Israelites were going to take over. A crafty ploy of tyrants. He recruited all the Egyptians saying these foreign 
people in our land are going to overthrow us. Based on what evidence? No evidence. Simply the fact that the people are growing. And so the text says that the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Again, why? They hadn't done anything. They weren't starting a revolution. They weren't gathering together an army. It was only by the word of Pharaoh that the Egyptians were filled with dread, scared for their future, frightened for what could come. But again, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. God was by no means indifferent to any of this. He was not indifferent to the suffering of his people. He made a covenant with them. He loved them. But we don't always understand why God does things the way that he does them, do we? Could he have made Israel a great nation without suffering and without slavery? Of course he could, but he didn't. That wasn't his plan. God was showing us that despite the circumstances, despite the evil in this world, despite the wicked intentions of man, he will fulfill his promises. He will ultimately deliver his people. He will be victorious. God uses the suffering of his people to bring about his purposes. But not only that, the Bible teaches us time and time again that God uses our suffering for our good. I realize that can be easy to say when I'm not in the midst of suffering myself, but it is a regular refrain that we see throughout the scriptures. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. This is where our faith is tried. It sounds harsh to the natural man. It seems unloving. But the Bible makes no apologies because we can trust that when we are trusting in the Lord that our suffering is a time where we are to be reminded that His grace is sufficient for us. His power is perfected in our weaknesses. So brothers and sisters, that means that all of our distress, all of our weakness, all of our sickness, all of our difficulty, it's all meant to bring us to rely less and less upon ourselves and to stand more faithfully upon the grace of God and to not grumble and complain about our suffering and trials, but to rejoice in the God who has given us the grace to stand, to be conformed all the more into the image of Christ. And if this is God's purpose in our suffering, and we see Pharaoh's purpose in oppressing the Israelites to make a name for himself, you see them growing further and further apart. The Israelites are called to rely more and more on God, while Pharaoh relies more and more on himself. But we must always remember what Paul told the church in Acts 14. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Brethren, we are not the exception The surprising reality of the Christian life is that our hope is not in spite of our current suffering, but rather it is rejoicing in current suffering because it produces the result that God intends for his glory and yes, even for our good. He's not indifferent to your pain, but he is not 
a heartless tyrant himself who derives divine pleasure from the sufferings of his people, he does work, even in the midst of your most difficult days, to bring you to where he wants you to be, trusting in him more and more, relying on him instead of yourself, being more as one who is trusting a loving father instead of being puffed up as a tyrannical Pharaoh. So yes, we look at Pharaoh and the treatment of the Israelites and we can and must say very clearly, it is evil. The suffering they endured was evil. The tyranny of a wicked man is evil. Slavery is always evil. Despotic, self-serving endeavors of ruthless men are evil. But God has a purpose and a plan that he would fulfill. You can count on it. We looked last time and were reminded of the words of Joseph himself. You meant evil. You meant much evil, grave evil on an entire group of people. And yet God meant it for good. And so brothers and sisters, lest we beat our chests with pride and declare that we have risen above the likes of Pharaoh, let us not forget our own ingratitudes. A new king arose over Egypt who knew not Joseph, but many years later, the king of all creation was revealed. Smitten, stricken, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Friends, there are some of you here now who do not know Christ. It's not that you haven't heard about him or that you have no knowledge of who he is or what he's done. It's that you simply don't care. Unlike Pharaoh dealing with the Israelites, this king has come to set you free. But instead, you continue in slavery, in your sin, toiling day and night over bricks that crumble for mere sustenance that will not fulfill. I will gladly join you to enjoy the best restaurants and coffee houses and bottles of wine, but you must know, my friend, that these are the gifts of God and not God himself. They are all headed to the sewage treatment plan in the end and provide no transcendent meaning or purpose. It is bound up in our sinful hearts that we would exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Our natural sinful tendency is to put our ingratitude on full display and focus all of our attention on the gift instead of the giver. And in the end, your great need is not bigger and better things or greater and more exciting experiences. You cannot numb the experience of your slavery with drink and sex and drugs and cars and houses and boats. Your financial net worth is not your savior. And amassing power and influence to your name will not allow you to bypass the just reward for your sin. Yes, it was a great evil that Pharaoh knew not Joseph, but the greater evil is that you know not Christ. The only outcome of not knowing Christ is a self-serving life that makes the people of God your enemy. The only outcome of not knowing Christ is doing all that you think you can do in your own finite wisdom to control the circumstances around you so that perhaps you might achieve a desirable outcome. 
But my friend, a life without Christ has no desirable outcome. In all of your efforts to extract from the world all that you can before you die, your attention is focused on yourself, and like Pharaoh, you think that you're up against other human beings. But what you don't know or you fail to acknowledge is that you're really standing up against God, the God who created you, the God who sustains you, the God who gives you life and breath and all your being. You may think you're dealing shrewdly with men when in reality you're dealing dangerously with God. Like Pharaoh, you think you're the ruler of your own destiny. You think you're the captain of your soul. But like Pharaoh, you're no true king, you're no true queen. You are a slave. A slave to your sin, a slave to your fleshly desires, a slave to the world and to the devil. But unlike Pharaoh, who didn't know what was yet to come, I am here to tell you what awaits all who know not Christ. Repent before you pay the price. Repent before the chains of slavery that are around your hands and your feet and your neck already that are so loosely bound are tightened forever in hell where there is no hope of freedom. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and live that the promised land that awaits those who love Christ can be yours. Look to Christ who says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Look to Christ that you might be free forever and never again experience the tyranny and slavery of sin and death. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we truly are thankful for the freedom from the slavery of sin and death that we find in Christ alone. I pray, O God, that as we consider the lives of your people under the foot of tyranny, that we recognize the greatest tyranny in our lives is that we would ever look to ourselves that we would ever think to ourselves that we are more worthy or deserving than we truly are. The great tyranny in this life is not other people, is not systems of government, is not the plans of wicked men. As evil as they may be, O God, we recognize that the great tyranny is that we would continue in sin. And so I pray this evening, Lord, that in our hearts you would extract from us, your people, any desire to be little pharaohs in this world. That you would extract any desire from our hearts to not live fully and completely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, oh God, I plead with you for those who are here tonight who do not know Christ, that you would send your spirit, that you would give them new life, that you would set their eyes not into the mirror, not upon themselves, but upon Christ himself, that they might live. Lord, release them from the chains of slavery. Help them to realize that any effort they make by bricks and mortar to build their own civilization will only crumble in the end. May it be that they might rise up tomorrow morning, no longer slaves, but free in Christ alone. 
And we pray you would do all of this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.